just to let you know, I talked about going back to Isaiah 43, um, but what we're going to do this morning, I, I didn't do, I said there was going to be a question and answer, and I didn't do any, there was no time for question and answer last week on this issue of fasting and prayer, and a number of people asked me good questions, and then I assume whenever I hear several people ask questions, most likely many more people have questions about fasting and prayer. So what we're going to do is I want to go back just briefly and highlight, um, hit the highlights again of what we discussed on the issue of fasting and prayer, um, and then um, look at a little bit more detail on Mark 9 and in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. So pray with me. Um, Father, thank you for your mercy and goodness and grace, and would even ask in these moments ahead that you would guide um, our time, uh, that it would be a blessing, that questions can be answered in Christ's name. Amen. And, and do look ahead and pray for me, because after this Sunday, we will be in Isaiah 43, uh, and it's just a great, great passage as I've been anticipating it. And as we look again at the idea, just look with me there briefly um, to give you a bit of a trailer. I know that's unusual to give a trailer for another message when you're in one message. Um, but look at Isaiah 43 just so briefly. Here are the thoughts that I have highlighted in my Bible because some of you may know I've shown you before. I have this what's called a Pentel 8. It's an eight-color pen. It's the, the markers are somewhat like a crayon, but very thin. You can write. And I have a system where something is circled in red, redemption, things that are written circled in green, sort of sense of growth. A light blue, that's my sense of prayer or praise that's there. Uh, I have a gray that talks about sin or disappointment or something like that. And then I have a purple that I purchased, and all those purple refer to God and his greatness, some attribute of God. And then I have an orange, which is like um, grammatical transitions that I'm, that I'm noting, things that I need to, need to pay attention to. Um, so uh, some great thoughts in Isaiah 43, just by way of, we'll call it devotional. Um, look at verse 1. Um, what did he, he say here? Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Now, you know, in Isaiah 41, we had messages that addressed the issue of fear there. If you go back to Isaiah 41, uh, what does he say there in Isaiah verse 10? Do not fear, for I'm with you. Don't anxiously look about, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not fear, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. He is the Holy One of Israel. And we tackled the issue of fear there, but it comes up again. And the reason it would come up, um, as we know, uh, the people of God are in exile, and they're wondering whether or not God hears them and is even capable of delivering them. And here, uh, he says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 41, this emphasis, it's, the emphasis on, I'm with you, I will help you. Here specifically, I have redeemed you. That's important because he's saying, I'm a gracious, forgiving God. You may think, we surely we should fear because we've sinned against the Lord. But he reaffirms uh, his covenant commitment to them and even the statement, I've redeemed you. 
people who are redeemed have no need to fear. And that's what he's communicating. And then he does say in verse 5, I'm with you. I'm going to gather you from the west and from the north. Um, I have created you for my glory, verse 7, whom I formed, even whom I have made. Notice verse 11. He says, there is no Savior besides me. Do we agree with that this morning? There's no Savior but the Lord. And notice verse 12. I have declared, I saved, I proclaimed. And like in my Bible, you will see, if you will, uh, verse 2, I'm with you. Uh, verse 3, I've given Egypt as your ransom. Verse 4, I love you. Verse 4, I will give other men. Verse 5, I'm with you. Verse 5, I will gather you. Verse 6, I will say. Verse 7, I have created. Verse 7, I have formed. Verse 10, I have chosen. Then verse 11, no Savior. Verse 12, declared, saved, proclaimed. And then verse 19, I will do something new, he says. Verse 19, I will make a roadway in the wilderness. Verse 20, um, I will, be, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, I will give drink to my chosen people. Verse 21, whom I formed, he says. Look at this glorious truth, truth in verse 25. Um, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions and I will remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. And so you see constantly these actions, salvific actions of God, starting all the way back with, I am with you. And then he says, I will not remember your sins. But then he says, it ends with this sense of judgment in verse 28. So I will pollute the princes of Israel, and I will consign Jacob to the band and Israel to revilement. God is a redeeming God. But verse 25, meditate on that this week. And I read it for you. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Why does God do it? For my name's sake, for his sake. We are saved for God's glory. Amen? And then in verse 25 as well, and I will not remember your sins. What a great promise that is. Now, we know God cannot forget anything. We know he has full knowledge, but what he is saying, I will not remember so as to hold them against you. And what a beautiful truth that is. So no wonder he can say, don't fear, because of all of this. Um, you say, boy, you're saying a lot about something you're not going to preach today. Uh, well, that's what's on my heart. It's, it really is. It's, it's just a wonderful truth. Um, and here, I wanted you to... Think about this to lead into what we're going to interact with today. This same great God is the one that you can go to in prayer. And at times he's saying to you, why don't you seek me in a particular way through fasting and prayer? Uh, the particular burdens that are on your heart. And why don't you come before me? And we have full access to the living God because of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So I do want to make this statement again about fasting and prayer and one sense it's said there uh, that fasting without prayer is just a form of asceticism. It is. Um, we, we must be engaged in prayer. If not, um, we are just involved in a religi religious exercise. Uh, there are people who, you know, leaders through time, particularly leaders that were involved perhaps in issues of... Um, social injustices or civil disruption, at times they would say, I'm going to go on a 
a, a fast. And so they're trying to gain attention to themselves uh, and to say, I'm so committed to this cause um, that, it, and they wouldn't say it's a fast, they would say it's a hunger strike. So I'm gonna go on a hunger strike to, to draw attention to the cause itself. Um, we aren't on hunger strikes. We may fast from food for a period of time because we want our prayers to be more focused. And that's why we do it. So we need to understand that. We talked even last week about uh, there are some key words that we're trying to achieve. is provide, give, exposit, inspire, and answer. And we really didn't get to the answer part in the lesson. And I want to give you some time to interact with you and answer questions for you. Because I know there are a number of things that may be on your mind that you're thinking about, because even after uh, the time of uh, last week, uh, a number of people said, what if, or is this a substitute, is this okay? And as I begin to think about that, those would be great questions for everyone to hear. And there's some key words when we think about defining fasting is intensity, sacrifice, humility, and earnest. That is, when we fast, we're saying to the Lord, uh, will you intensify my thoughts about you and my prayers to you? Um, I'm making this sacrifice from something that's normal. And we show ourselves humility, or we show ourselves to be humble when we fast and to be in earnest. And again, intensity, earnest, um, brothers of one another, if you will. And it's an, a way to intensify our prayer life. And we talked about the scope of uh, fasting and prayer, and there's a lot here. It was either national or individual, or at times it was combined. We saw even in the book of Acts, we see the people of God still honoring the commanded fast during the Day of Atonement. Old Testament, it was commanded that you fast. Even it says in the Old Testament that you would afflict yourselves, that you would show humility during this time. And then we saw the Pharisees, even some of them would fast twice a week. And then there was Anna, who often fasted in Luke chapter 2. The early Christians, they would fast before even the giving of the Spirit. We saw Paul fasting as well and praying. The early church, fasting and praying before they commissioned men to go into the field, and even before they were sending out of missionaries. And then we look kind of historically at a number of people through history, so it's not as if this is some novel thought. Um, Luther and Calvin and Knox and even Wesley, the London plagues where a king or queen would call the people of God to fast during that time, Edwards and Boston. And I reference even William Ames from his, what is called his marrow of theology refers to fasting. William Perkins, who is called the father of Puritanism, he talks about the benefit of fasting and prayer. And even John Broadus, great uh, homiletician, if you will, about the idea of fasting and prayer. Amy Carmichael Hudson Taylor, and the list goes on. Mueller and his influence on the Schaefers, and even from the Westminster Larger Catechism, the benefit of fasting and prayer. Something uh, that I listened to that I came across, I made this change from um, Apple Music to Spotify. All my kids kept telling me that Spotify was better. And I said, well, let me try it. And I changed over, and there was a, a, an app where all of my playlists and uh, music could be transferred over. So it was fairly streamless to do it. And then some other things started to pop up when it came to podcasts. And I saw a friend. Wow, uh, there she is. Here's her podcast right there. And then a number of other things came up. And I had 
um, put in some information about history, and all of a sudden it started feeding me these podcasts for history. And one that I started to listen to was actually called Daily History. And um, so each day of the week, uh, they would say, you know, on this date in history, this occurred. And it's about 15 to 18 minutes. So sometimes if I'm, you know, generally when I'm on the road, I'll say, oh, I'm on the road for, you know, five hours going from Santa Clarita to Silmar, right? Because of traffic. <laughs> now, some of you, they're laughing because you know it should only take you about 15 minutes. But that's, that's driving in Southern California. So I pop on a podcast and I'm listening to something. And more recently, what the podcast had to do with because September 2nd, 1666, the London fires. The London fires began. And so I listened to it, it was, and I'm familiar with it, but it was, it was fascinating to hear the details of it. And I, I thought about it a little bit more, so I started to do a bit more research. Charles II, you know, at this time he considers himself a playboy, and he, he loves his pop, pomp and circumstance. He was being very, people being very critical of him, but he gained a great reputation because he was there for three days, really four days, helping with the fire and cover it with soot, and, and the word spread that maybe he's not so bad of a king. So I did more research into that, and I thought it very interesting that what happened in October of 1666, Charles II said what? He called on London and people throughout to do what? What do you think he called them to do? He said, you should fast and pray. And a part of the reason he did that, because they had already been facing issues of civil war, civil uprising, that is, not war, amongst themselves. And then there was um, there had been the plagues that had just died down um, in London at the time. A hundred thousand people died from the plagues. And it, the word is, when it comes to the London fire, maybe only a handful of people died, maybe perhaps ten. There's, you know, with these things, there's differences of opinion about it. But a hundred thousand versus ten, um, when a third of London um, was burned to the ground. And what is interesting about it as well, as I look more into the history, I start to investigate more, that in October they said that we should fast and pray that God's wrath would be stayed. And in part, the people of London thought, surely this is going to be a year of wrath, because listen to the date, 1,666. Uh, there you go, exactly. So they thought this is ominous. And, well, it was pretty bad a year for them. So he said, what you should do, people of London, people of England, that we should fast and pray that perhaps God would show us favor. Very much a part of the culture. And we see it was most definitely part of the biblical norm, if you will. And we see it a part of culture in history and not just in the church, but just the influence of Christianity uh, in secular culture. Very interesting. Um, Christianity has been influencing culture for ages. Um, in conversations with someone, and we were talking about ministry abroad and discussing about what is happening in Africa, and they were saying, if we go to Europe right now, how much has changed? I said, it's so interesting, isn't it? I uh, was remembering coming here to a seminary, and I uh, was headed to another seminary, and I told you this story before, and I uh, met John MacArthur in the Orlando area, 
And I said to him, well, I'm headed to this seminary. He says, why would you want to do that? Uh, and I would have had the great support behind me of a big convention, absolutely free ride. I had the support of a large church that was in Orlando. This was going to be the, the way to go. And he says, no, don't do that. And he said, come get west, young man, is what he said. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to go to this seminary. And he actually said to me, and classic John MacArthur, why would you want to go there and learn from a bunch of dead Germans? Now, I, put, I have to put that in context. What he meant by it is at that time, Southern Baptist seminaries were, they were trying to pull away from liberalism and in one sense redeem some of the seminaries that had given to liberalism. And a part of that reason was um, criticism that was coming from schools in Germany. So in all of their brilliance in Germany, the brilliance began to question the word of God, and you had issues of what is called higher criticism. And so he says, no, don't, don't, don't go there. They're too influenced by it. Well, I took his advice, and, and I came here in 1989, although when I first came, I thought, no, I'm not staying here. Um, and guess what? Here we are. What, what do they say about the best laid plans of mice and men, right? <laughs> and then the proverb surely says it what in Proverbs 16, um, that we should essentially be careful about the plans that we make in life because the Lord's plans will do what? They will stand. Just a quick question for you. How many of you have made other plans in life and they've changed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Raise both hands. Exactly. You say, what? what are you talking about? Your plans in life and plagues and fires um, because we need to seek the Lord. And then I sought the Lord through fasting and prayer. And I thought, Lord, what should I do? I have, here's this giant convention behind me, this church. I can have a great inroads. And what should I do? And I sought the Lord in fasting and prayer. And he said to me, now when I say said, now I may say said in the future, uh, you do know what I mean by said. Well, maybe not. So let's make sure you, let me clarify. Said, a strong impression upon you. Said, you look to the Word of God and you see, oh, there, there are principles I should abide by. When I say said, there's clarity of, of thought. When I say said, I mean you have a peace about yourselves that this is the right decision to make. Not said in the way of, of crackpots that tell us about God said something to them. We understand that. And it was go west. And I came west. And I thought, Lord, I'm, I'm walking away from this support and I'm walking away from uh, these contacts and I'm walking away from this. Go west. And the Lord opened doors for me. And here I am today, an amazing thing. I'm a part of that because I said, Lord, I'm in earnest. What is the next step for my life? What should I do? And I sought him in fasting and prayer. And I wanted an answer from the Lord. And the Lord, in his graciousness, gave me an answer. Go west. And I came west in 1989, and I'm still here. And there have been times I thought about, I tried to go back east, and the Lord said, stay west. <laughs> and should I go back east? Stay west. And so fasting and prayer is not something that should be unusual. I mean, there are people who have taken it, perverted it, and they use it for something else. But we remember, I want to say, I've said this so many times before, do not be reactionary. Do not be reactionary. Ask yourself a question. 
Look for biblical principles. Look for godly examples. Look for historical points and say, is this the correct decision to make? Because our tendency can be, and I want to say our tendency, some of us and our conservative, which I believe in circles, they said it, therefore it must be wrong. Uh, they do it, therefore it must be wrong. And that's simply not the case. Especially of all the people that I just showed you in history that have been a part of it. And even we looked at some of the familiar voices of people that you would be familiar with today. Even with our own pastor, John MacArthur, in the time in which he and Mark was suffering from a brain tumor, and he sought the Lord, as he said, even in those remarks, nine or ten days, that he sought the Lord in fasting and prayer. And Mark MacArthur is still with us today. You say, did fasting and prayer have something to do with it? Yes, because God uses means. You can say, well, God knew that Mark MacArthur was going to be healed from the beginning of the ages. Of course he did. Because there is no development in the knowledge of God. He knows all things. We understand that. But God is still a God that uses means. Because if we don't believe that God uses means, then why pray? I would even say this to you. Why go and evangelize? Why encourage your brother and sister in Christ? Why, why comfort them? Because God uses means and God uses you. And when you pray to the living God, that's a means to bring about sovereign results. Have you not prayed for someone's soul that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? Have you not begged the Lord that, God, will you open their eyes? Then in due time, and notice that in due time, God has opened their eyes. And aren't there people right now that you're praying for and asking the living God, will you open their eyes that they can see Christ? There are people that I pray for every day. Because I'm frightened by the reality that they're facing an everlasting separation from God. And I give that, I've been giving it a lot of thought, maybe for the last several years, the reality of it. I was in a discussion even recently with some students about prayer and, and how we now have this great access before the living God and we can come to him with boldness. And a student asked me, he said, well, um, Professor Hargrove, we do, we're doing this reading about prayer, and Martin Luther was emphasizing this fact that we come before him as this lowly sinner before God, but we also come as an adopted child. I would say, well, I love Luther in many ways, but I would, I would say I come as an adopted child. I don't come as a lowly sinner. I come as an adopted child who does sin. I think there's a difference in emphases here. I come as an adopted child who does sin, who at times makes poor decisions. But I come to him fully and with boldness before the living God based on Hebrews. And if we think about it even in context, Hebrews is telling us what? We have full access to God because of what? In the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is preached as what? He is what sort of sacrifice? Someone tell me. What sort of sacrifice is he? Uh, what? Perfect? Did I hear perfect sacrifice? Uh, what is another word you might use for him? Permanent sacrifice? Absolutely, because there's no need, because the scripture says once and for what? Once and for all. What else sort of sacrifice is he? Would we say superior sacrifice? Because he's superior to what? The blood of rams and of goats and of bulls. So now what we have to understand, and my statement to them is also my statement to you, it is in one sense uh, misguided 
that we put so much emphasis on ourselves and not more emphasis on the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. In one sense, that's the beauty of what Hebrews is telling us. I can come boldly before the throne of grace, nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the superior sacrifice. So this tells us all the more just how great the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is. I can come boldly. Is this, how can I come boldly before the throne of grace? But I thought these things, and I've done these things, and, and I still struggle inside of me. Yes, that's true. However, you're seeing through what? Your redemption. This is the beauty of a sufficient Savior. So prayer is very much a part of our, our Christian life, and I think fasting intensifies it. Intensifies it. Fasting by itself, uh, that's a diet. Uh, fasting and prayer intensifies your spirit, prayer life, your thought life, and thoughts about God. And that's what we want to have, don't we? Thoughts about God. And don't we want to commune with the living God? And don't we want to intervene for other people? Of course we do. And then, if you will, uh, let's again just remind you what has been said in Matthew, Matthew 6 and Matthew 9. Jesus practice, and it was straightforward. His practice was in Matthew 4, 40 days and 40 nights. He's in the wilderness to begin his ministry. As I said before, uh, that is something that is supernatural. One can go 40 days without eating, but you cannot go 40 days without drinking water. You will die. So supernatural. Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And then he taught about it. And what was the teaching? It was really straightforward. We saw in verses 1 to 4, these three marks of Jewish piety, of Jewish godliness, uh, the giving up to the poor, um, prayer, and then fasting. And what was Christ saying in verses 16 and 17? Uh, just briefly to restate it, um, in Matthew 6, look with me at Matthew 6, 16 and 17, and what does it say? We first, there is a resistance to hypocrisy and human approval. The Pharisees wanted it. It must be resisted. Don't put on a gloomy face. Don't neglect your appearance so that you'll be noticed by men. You have your reward in full, but instead anoint your head and wash your face. I want to talk about this a little bit more, but I'm sure it may come up in our Q&A time, which is um, in the years that I have been involved in fasting and prayer, and the first time I ever did it was right out of college. And the reason I did it right out of college was God absolutely re-scrambled my life. And you've heard some of my story before. Everything was in place since I was about 14 or so. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to spend my life this way. I'm going to go into the military. I'm going to be an airborne ranger. I'm going to do 20 years. I'm going to retire at 42. I'm going to have my military pension. I'm going to work again to 60. I have another pension, and I'll travel the world. And then the Lord says, oh, thank you for submitting that paper. <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there a divine shredder nearby? And some of us have experienced. Have you not experienced divine shredding of your life plans? Divine shredding of your life plans. And so there it was. I was on course uh, playing football. They're paying for my school. I'm involved in ROTC. This is great. My commander come to me and say, Hargrove, we like you. We want to give you an Army scholarship. You have what it takes. I'm thinking, 
ah, this is great, everything's on track, but then I go for an exam. And they say, oh, wow, you have this illness. Ah, we're not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? Of course you're sure. Well, we have to take it to a board, and that board is going to have to decide. So a year later, he came to me and said, sorry, we can't accept you. There's, there's some people that have it, but they've made a new decision. It came from Walter Reed Army Hospital. I'll never forget it. From a committee there, and they said, no, we can't take you. Devastated. Devastated. But I thought, okay, all right, plan B. Um, play football, graduate, um, try to go play for five years, retire while I can still remember my name, uh, <laughs> make some investments in life, and that's what I'll do. So guess what? Plan B came along. And plan B, there I am, about to make a tackle the week before the first game. The coaches said, hey, Hargrove, have a good year. You may go. I thought, okay, that's, that's plan B. Move this leg, went that way, my knee stayed. Now, what do you think happens when you're, you plant your leg and you move the other direction? Yeah, ACL, MCL, gone, blown. I said, oh, wow, Lord, what should I do? Okay, what, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What is it that you want from me? And I began to pray and think, what should I do, Lord? And then my, the guy that was leading me in our Bible study for athletes, hey, Hargrove, I think you may have a gift. What do you mean a gift? Like you, you, teaching seems to come easy for you. Well, I didn't really even know what that meant at that time. I had just come to the Lord right after the, the incident with uh, uh, the military. And this is what you should maybe think about in life. So I graduate, and I thought, what do I do now, Lord? And I looked in the Bible, it says, oh, people fasted and prayed. It was just that simple for me. I didn't know any better. And I said, that's what I'll do. I'll fast and pray. And I got on my knees and I fasted and prayed. And it was more affirming that it was ministry. Then I, shortly after that, I'd be driving around town and I saw this huge building going up. And it, I thought, wow, they're building a new hospital over here. That's pretty good. Well, I found out that was First Baptist Orlando. That Southern Baptist Church. And I started to attend, and the Lord opened doors for me there. Then I heard this man on the radio, like, wow, he teaches the Bible all the time. Who is he? Anyone guess who that is? Yeah, I think we all know. The Lord guided me. Now, this is something I've told few people. Few people. Okay, this illness that I had. Um, the Lord took it from me. Say, don't be frightened by that. I didn't say I healed myself. I said the Lord took it from me. You do realize that God still heals people. Do we agree with that? But I don't have any gift like these false teachers say. But God still heals. And sometimes he says cancer is gone. Sometimes he says put your house in order. Sometimes he says they tell you six months, I may give you six years. Sometimes they tell you six months, six months and it's six days. So he took it away. What was the illness? And I'll even go further. I'll tell you this. When I was 15, I was on the football field, and I woke up, and all these people were around me. And I thought, what happened? It was, you know, Florida. I'm practicing heat exhaustion. That's what it was. And they said, oh, you need to go to the doctor. I said, why should I go to the doctor? I Just give me some um, Gatorade, you know. 
That's all I need. No. So from the age of 15, I started to suffer from epilepsy. Yeah, and I had all sorts of things done, scans done, MRIs done, looked at my brain. Um, they could find, I, w I was about to say nothing there. <laughs> so let me put that in context. <laughs> Uh, nothing that was alarming to them in my brain. <laughs> and it's, we don't know why it happens. Some, he said, normally with this type, you get it early and you just grow out of it. We don't know why. And, uh, well, I knew why. Because that's why the military said no to me. So I was on a medication I take every day called Dilantin. And uh, they said, yeah, there's some people in the, that have it, but we, we don't do that anymore. So I said, okay, Lord, it's obvious you, you are redirecting my life. I fasted and prayed. I said, okay, Lord, this is what I'll do. And, um, <clears throat> and I felt like it was the Lord said to me, again said, like it served its purpose. I got the medication. I threw it away. Now, you're all adults here. You know you have to make your own individual decision when it comes to things like this. Do you, you do understand that? Let me make sure I restate that. That's why in a certain audience, I wouldn't even share it, because they'd say, oh, Pastor Carl threw his medication away. I'll do the same. <laughs> no, I threw it away. And, um, and I remember going to my dad and telling him, Dad, it's over with, because at times I'd have an attack, and I suffer from at times what's called a grand mal seizure. And, um, and it would worry him. And he said, you sure about that, Carl? <laughs> and I did tell him. Here's funny. I said, well... I said, I did keep three in case it was the devil. <laughs> but literally, then I, that, by the end of the day, I took those three and I flushed them down the toilet. I've never had an episode since. And I said, the Lord didn't want me to go into the military, Dad. And I was on track since I was this age, and this is what he decided to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And eventually I would sell what I had, and I'd pack up my car, and I'd come to California. Uh, that all started with a simple young guy that thought, you should seek the Lord in prayer. And maybe at times what you should do is intensify with fasting. And that's what happened. So this is like driven deeply into my soul. You have to understand and it's not just because I have experience. Remember, experience is not an authority. Um, but experience isn't necessarily discounted either. So I had experience, and then I had, as I've looked before, the apostles, as an example, the early church. And then there's Knox, and there's Boston, and there's William Perkins, and there's William Ames, and there's Amy Carmichael, and there's C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, and there's the Puritans, and there's Calvin, and a list of other people that I haven't even named that are behind me. So it wasn't as if I just said, oh, I had this experience, God healed me when I was 20-something, therefore you should fast and pray, because this is what happened to me. No, not at all. My small episode in life of God's providential care. It's just one episode in a long string of God's faithfulness to his people when we seek him. So we do it with the right motives and the right intentions. So this is what the scripture is telling us. The secret place, again, is just the fact that he's not talking about literally that I never let anyone know that I'm fasting, because the same would be true if we look at the context. You never let anyone know that you're giving and you never even let anyone know that you're praying. 
Because he says, go to the secret place, go to your closet, close the door. He's looking at the heart, especially the heart of the Pharisees, who were showboats, if you will. And he says, never be like them. Do it with the right motives, is what he is saying. And of course, in Matthew 9, just briefly, there are guidelines that are there. The wedding guests and uh, their sons of the bridal hall, because the Christ is there, and he's the bridegroom. We see that in Matthew 22, 25. We see it in Isaiah 62, in the book of Hosea. Christ is that bridegroom, and he's saying, while the bridegroom is with them, they should not be fasting, but I will be taken away, his death and resurrection. And then we have to address this, this, this idea, they will fast. So when I initially looked at it, I thought they will fast, and I didn't see anything in Scripture that says they will no longer fast. Say, for instance, we might wrestle with the issue of spiritual gifts, and we see spiritual gifts manifested in the early church, but as we understand other texts, and particularly as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians, we say, well, that was for a period of time. Uh, I don't believe in, I'm not a continuationist. It was for a period of time, but we don't see anything in Scripture that says, thou shalt fast until this time. He simply says, you will fast, and they will fast. Now, I need to tackle one other thing that I'll open it for questions. Um, look at the first point of the guidelines, and it was Matt, Mark 9, 29, and 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And I just briefly said, well, just trust me on this. Uh, and the reason I said that is because in Mark 9, 29, you will find in um, the King James and New King James that it would say, Jesus Christ says, the disciples go out again, and they had been out before, and he says, everything is subject to us. But then they come back, and there was difficulty with certain demons that couldn't be cast out. They couldn't exercise them. And he says, this type, which is interesting in that language, so obviously Jesus is right now categorized even demonic powers. This type only comes out by fasting and prayer. So King James, New King James says fasting and prayer, because those scriptures are based on a, uh, a different manuscript evidence, okay? Whereas all of their, I shouldn't say all others, that's the exception. The majority of other manuscript evidence, particularly those two that Protestants lean upon most, um, the earliest ones, don't have um, prayer and fast. They don't have it. So the majority are going to say, um, Matthew 9.29, we should not retain it. Although, interesting enough, uh, one New Testament scholar, R.T. France, he argues that because in this sense, I'm sorry, let me reverse it, Matthew, uh, Mark 9.29, um, there is a smaller group that don't have it, those two uh, that are the oldest, whereas many others do have it. And so the question is, with these two to the most trustworthy, and it is true, should we go by the shorter reading and also the earlier reading? And then most are going to say, yes, go with the shorter reading and the earlier reading. Whereas R.T. France, uh, and what is it, uh, International Greek New Testament Commentary, he would say, no, perhaps we should retain it, because these other manuscripts have it. Now, he's in a, major a minority position there. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Look at there, that briefly, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. This idea that husband and wife, for a period of time, they should abstain from their relations to one another. 
uh, for a time of prayer. And then New King James and King James again will say prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Now this is simpler because the majority of texts just don't have it, particularly those two that are the oldest and the youngest don't have it, to the point where some will even don't even comment on it. I think it's um, Gordon Fee. It's a great commentary, um, apart from a few areas um, on Corinthians. Um, he doesn't even address it. And the reason he doesn't address it is that he would say, I don't even think it's something that needs to be considered because it's pretty obvious that it was added later on. But here's an important thing. Even if we say, okay, only the King James and New King James have it, and that's based because their commitment to a certain uh, manuscript evidence, um, all the scholars made this statement. All of them would make this statement. And I mentioned last week, including Brutz Metzger, very, very well-known New Testament scholar, it was most likely added because it was such a part of the Christian church at the time. That's why. So that tells you, although we don't see it in the text, it was just understood that the church was a group of people that fasted and prayed. And this is a time in which we're talking about um, uh, the copyists putting it in. So this is years, this is years after the apostles have gone. They say, no, this would be a part of normal church life. And because there is some evidence of seeing it, it would be copied again. So even though you don't see it in the text, and I would say overall probably not in the text, it was very much, hands down, very much a part of the culture of the church. So a number of things to consider. So that brings you up to date. It also gives you a little bit more of my personal window and my journey with it as well, and even a little bit more about my life. And, and the reason I even shared some of those things with you, like when I'm here talking to you about Isaiah and God's greatness and who he is and his faithfulness, I've seen it for so many years. This young kid at 15 had thought, here is life. And then he saves him because I still remember believing that I knew the Lord and I didn't. And he opened my eyes right there in my dorm room and he set me in a course of life. And he took this away from me, and he took this away from me, but he had a better plan. And this young guy that I didn't know anything, what is a manuscript? I didn't even know what a manuscript was. I didn't know what a codex was. I didn't know what a papyrus was. But I just looked at the Bible and thought, fasting and prayer. And I prayed and fasted, and the Lord gave me new direction in life. And I've seen him provide over these years. So when you hear me saying, trust the Lord, this is not just because of some study that I've done this week. It is because of that. Now, make sure you understand it. But it is a lifelong um, testimony of a faithful God meeting my every need. And the hand of providence unfolding right in front of me. And even in moments when you think, oh, no, this is not turning out the way that I thought. And you say, oh, praise God that it didn't. I see the better plan. I see the better way. And times when God breaks your heart, that broke my heart when they said no to me. I said, this is an honorable thing. Why would I not want to do this? It broke my heart. But then the Lord says, I'm going to fill it with something else. And God does that. Amen? Amen. So I have no greater joy than what I do right now. Um, 
Do I tend thinking towards that way? You probably know I, I think that way a lot because part of it's in my blood. Whatever literally gets transferred to you, you know, from parents, because that's an interesting dynamic itself, it's in my blood. It's a part of my upbringing. It was my mindset for so long. And I think it helps me today when it comes to ministry. Let's fight. This is war. And that's even what Paul said, right? No soldier, he says, in active duty entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. You're all soldiers. Then you must fight as such. The enemy is not giving you a respite. Do we agree with that? No respite whatsoever. And if you're not strategically engaged, you will become a casualty of war. One way that we can fight is, I think, by fasting and prayer. Okay, questions. I got through it. Questions. Let's get the microphones ready, because I know after that first person asks, uh, we'll, we'll start to interact a little bit. Okay, who's, who can start us off? Okay, excellent. Okay, we need to, I hear you, but, can you hear me? There we go. Okay, perhaps uh, the slide answers the question, but um, does the term fasting in Hebrew and in Greek really limit itself to fasting from food, or might it be abstaining from other activities as well? The, the word itself is not going to tell us food, but the context is going to tell us um, more so. So to fast is always a sense in which I'm going to abstain from, if you will. Um, and so in context, uh, we see that it was food. So let's abstain from food. It was a way to say that um, it is something that you naturally need, but yet um, replace it with something that you absolutely must have, which is communion with God. Now, part of that question is, can we do something else? Even as I've said in some of these pointers, People have asked me, there may be people, just medically, health-wise, they can't go a day or two days or three days or longer than that without having a proper diet. They need a certain intake of sugar. Some need a certain intake of proteins. The Lord knows that. And that's the beauty of even what's being taught in Matthew 6. Um, look at the, God is looking at the heart. That's the secret place, if you will. So if you know that's your condition, then fast from something else. But it must be something that costs you something. Yeah, it, it has to cost you something. Um, and then you would, I would think that person might look at their life and say, okay, what are the things that I do on a regular basis that's very much a part of my normal cycle that I can sacrifice for a period of time and fast and pray? But again, and pray is necessary. Okay, great. Yes, right here. Um, I know this question might vary from person to person, sure. due to health reasons or whatnot, what um, but a fast, what constitutes a fast in speaking in time frame? Uh, is there a minimum amount sure. of time? I mean, I cannot eat for five hours, do I call that a fast? Okay. Uh, is there a minimum amount, like it's a 24-hour period? Or? No, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so is that a fast if I skip lunch or breakfast? I would say that it is if that's your norm. And I mentioned before at my former churches, we would have long periods, especially in the spring. I'd say, here's some things we can pray about as a church. I'm going to fast for so long. And I'd create like devotions for each day in scriptures we could all read together. And, but then I would say to people, like I, I'm saying it even now, 
Uh, none of you can probably fast as long as I will. That's okay. But just at least join me and let me pray for you. Now, and I say some of you, which I'll say again, it should just be a meal. Start with a meal. And if you're always a breakfast person, give up breakfast. And as I said last week, and I say every time I make this talk, if you never eat lunch and you give up lunch, guess what? Doesn't qualify. That doesn't qualify. It has to be something that may make your belly churn just a little bit, where you're used to it. You're used to a certain cycle. So you just start with maybe it can be one meal, and you start with that meal, and then you develop from there. Maybe the next time it's a day. Then you say, oh, wow, I got through that. That's okay. Maybe it's two days. And then you, you just go from there, and it develops. Uh, the first time I ever did it, um, it was like three days. But then I've developed over time. Yeah. And the reason sort of that's a window for me, I feel like in three days I feel, still feel this urge to eat, but after that it's kind of no big deal, if you will. But there are times when I thought, today I just need to fast and pray. And some of my interns, especially in the past, would tell you, uh, they'd come to me, hey, pastor, are you fasting today? Because I wouldn't always tell them that. And that's a part of that principle as well. And I'd say, yes, what is it today? I said, I have so much to do. I really need to focus and pray about all of these things that are before me. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Could you imagine a fast without feeling hunger? Uh, I can imagine it after a period of time. That first 72 hours, maybe, maybe especially 48, I, I will feel it. Um, but then the things that you're thinking about are so important that the feelings are incidental, if you will. And I think there may be times, say for instance, even in scriptures, where it's immediately there's a fast because of mourning, and probably in those experiences, food immediately would have been just, I don't want to touch food because I'm so focused on this, or I'm so grievous over what has happened, or my own sin, that... You don't feel hunger. But I think people will experience it, you know, in different ways. Okay, right here. Okay, then we'll go back over here. There we go. So if you wanted to implement a very specific discipline in your life and you're finding yourself distracted, whatever, this is a good discipline in order to start praying the Lord to help you. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think so. If I understand, because you say eight, the, uh, is the other discipline different than fasting? It's something else that you... Sure, I need to start, I need to do more scripture memory. And I find myself constantly distracted from it. Or I need to start doing this in the mornings as a, on a regular basis. Lord, help me. I'm going to be in earnest about this. and I'm going to pray and fast about it. And one thing that's interesting too is um, some of you may have gone to Harry Walls, his um, workshop, I think he did it on purity in Sundays in July. I believe it, and he, all, he made the statement that even at times when it comes to purity and the struggle for purity, maybe what's necessary is a time to fast and pray, to be in earnest as you battle against you know, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the world. Yes. There we go. How can we avoid the tendency in 
Sure, that's a good question. Yeah, fasting is not a magic bullet. That's what we have to realize. Because if we go back, it really isn't the fasting, it's the intensified prayer. So now we have to answer the question about prayer. Can be, because we prayed about something, can we expect a certain answer? We would all say, no. God answers three ways, does he not? He says, yes. He says, no. And what else does he say? Wait. Those are the answers that he gives. So just because fasting has been added to it doesn't mean, oh, now um, I'm going to get the answer now. Whereas before, had I just been in prayer over the issue, um, God would not have answered me. Uh, we do see, say for instance, um, so that's, that's the answer in a nutshell, that we can't expect it. It's not a silver bullet. But it will intensify prayers, I believe, and even bring, get some of the fog out of the mind and help you see a perspective you didn't see before. Um, look with me, Isaiah 58. Sure, because a part of it, prayer, is we're trying to align ourselves with the will of God, and we may not know it. We, we, we may not discern it. So we, we're, this is a way to seek the face of God. And so I'm seeking the face of God, and as I seek the face of God, now I realize, oh, that's the answer. That is better than what I was deciding on. This is a much better route. route. Um, Isaiah 58, the people of God are in sin, um, and he said something very interesting here. In verse 2, well, actually in verse 3, he says, Why have you fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, the day of our fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Now, what's happening here? God is indicting Israel. So, in verse, the first part of verse 3, it's the people talking. They're saying to God, Why are we fasting and you don't see us, God? Why we humbled ourselves and you don't notice us, God? You should be doing something. Fasting is the silver bullet. But he says, no, it's not. Because notice now God is talking here. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you find your desire. So you're still doing lustful things as you're fasting. And you drive hard all your workers. You're taking advantage of the innocent and the afflicted, but you're fasting. It's like the Pharisees, they're fasting, but yet they're still what? They're taking advantage of the widows and of the poor. And God is saying, I don't, your fast is nothing to me because it's not met with the, the secret heart. But notice what he says in verse 4. Um, Behold, you fast for contention and strife and strike with a wicked fist. Notice verse 4, so important. You do not fast like you do today, to make your voice heard on high. So there is an implication that God is saying when you do fast and it's met with the right intentions and with prayer, your voice will be heard on high. Why? Because we see consistently when God sees his people humble themselves, what does he consistently do? Forgive. He brings them back. He relents of evil, if you will. I'm going to show you mercy and compassion instead of wrath. So it's just a way to say now, if we do it properly, if you will, it, in a, from a human perspective, moves the heart of God. And he says, well, here is a true fast. Work on this first. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and a reed is bent over? 
in one sense, we can project ahead. Is it the fast like the Pharisees will do many hundreds of years from now? Is it for sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? And he says, no, this is a fast which I choose. And he goes on to tell them, start with this. Start with showing justice. Start with showing fairness. And then once you do that, then you'll be prepared to truly fast and to seek my face. Yeah. So there we are. Um, But boy, we run out of time. I see the people in commission are, they're commissioning us to leave. (laughs) So at some other time, we'll interact with this. Uh, Please do this. If you really, if you have any questions, email them to me, and I'll be, I'll love to answer it for you. At some point in time, I'm probably going to maybe spend some time doing this. And I'd love for, um, once it happens, I'll let you know and how I can pray for you and send me your prayer requests, and that will help me out. Amen? The Lord is good. Lord, thank you for this time you've given us, your grace and mercy, and guide us through the rest of this day. Amen.